A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, this is Alice Mattermilk, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Today, uh, we're wandering into the world of weapons, and we're talking about weapons that change the world. Yeah, and uh, we actually we were talking about this earlier. Um, the first thing that springs to mind is The Simpsons. Right, um, of course, The Simpsons. Yeah, the uh, Treehouse of Horror episode where uh, King and Kodos uh, take over the world. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the one where they go to Morocco, and mm-hmm. uh, the Simpsons go to Morocco, and they buy that severed monkey hand. The monkey paw, yeah. Yes, the monkey paw. That sounds much nicer than severed hand. And then they all make a wish, right? Mm-hmm. And Lisa wishes for world peace. Mm-hmm. And poor Lisa, it backfires on her, as as most of Lisa's plans yeah. seem to do. They uh, they burn all the guns. They you know they I think they launch weapons into the sun or something. You know, uh, so everybody's at peace, and that just makes us ripe for the picking for. The aliens who right. land and what enslave humanity with uh, with what weapons? Um, a slingshot and a club, I believe, are the weapons of Kang and Kodos. And then uh, eventually, uh, the uh, barkeep Mo manages to drive them away with, I believe, a board with a rusty nail in it. Go Mo! So these are examples of game-changing military technologies. Each one just drastically changes the face of human or human slash alien conflict on the planet. Yeah, in real life, outside of The Simpsons, we've had a few, too. And uh, they've shaped the way wars waged and, and won or, mm-hmm. or lost, as the case may be. And when you look at these technologies, and when Robert and I were talking about them before, they you kind of see that they start to fall into um, 
three categories, right? So you have the weapons that expand the battlefield, the ones that, you know, make it bigger, you know, make the theater of war much larger, spanning continents and seas and all that. And you also, these same weapons can increase the speed of war. Mm -hmm. And then there are weapons or technologies, as the case may be, that increase communication abilities between and among troops and soldiers or uh, their ability to spy on enemy troops and, and movements and stuff like that. And then, of course, there's firepower, good old-fashioned firepower. Now, um, you might be thinking, well, why is stuff in the science lab talking about military and and, uh, and warfare? Uh, well, that's because basically the story of, of science is also the story of war, because heaven forbid uh, humans invent anything uh, that we can't turn around and kill the next guy with. All right, giddy up, Robert. All right, let's yeah, get on, going. on that note, let's uh, let's head straight to, I mean, what uh, seems to me the and what historians tend to agree is like one of the big game-changing military technologies of all of all time. Talking, of course, about the horse. The horse isn't necessarily something I would think of as a technology, but a technology indeed for our purposes. Yes, uh, and nobody's nobody's sure exactly when uh, when when this this all began, but they say that initial domestication of the horse. Uh, was probably um, uh, looked into just for food, just, you know, taming the animal so that you could butcher it and eat it. And at some point, they started realizing, hey, uh, I need to haul this from uh, point A to point B, um, so why don't I uh, hook something up to the horse? They started using them as uh, draft animals. And then at some point, they were like, hey, I can, uh, I can, you know, ride this into war. And they started developing uh, uh, ways of using the horse in warfare. And they they think the earliest example of this is 5,000 years ago. Wow. Um, and there's evidence of um, of um, horse warfare uh, popping up uh, in Eurasia between uh, 4,000 and 3,000 B.C. Are you able to ride a horse, by the way? Uh, no. My uh, my my wife is, uh, um, is, is a, an accomplished uh, rider and, uh, and loves horses. I uh, have not actually uh, gotten on one yet. Um, she keeps threatening to make it happen, or I, I think I would probably like ride maybe a pony or like a or a cart behind. I once rode a camel. Yeah, yeah. Like so you set between the humps. Or, it was kind of like the saddle set on top of the humps at uh, some sort of zoo place. I rode an elephant. I did ride an elephant. Excellent, but not a horse that I remember. So have elephants been used in battle? Probably oh, not. Yes, yes, of really? course. Yes, Hannibal. Oh yes, yes, yes. yes. Okay. Oh yeah, Lord of the well, Lord of the Rings didn't actually happen, but still, um, yeah, elephants and in, in warfare are also pretty big. Um, and in, in Thailand, they were used. Uh, yeah, elephants have uh, have helped uh, helped humans out in their in their uh, warring. But um, anyway, back to the horse. Another important factor in what they call the uh, equine revolution is uh, availability of food, and this is uh, the transition from hunter gathering. To, um, to actual agriculture, all right? Before, you know, hunting, hunter-gatherers, you're going to wage war for what? Just, you know, oh, you're picking berries from my shrubs, right? But with the development of agriculture, um, suddenly there's the ability to have a true surplus of food. So you could actually attack the other guy, and you'd have something, you know, really tangible to steal. And the horse about allows you to, uh, to not only get the drop, but to run away with the food, all right? Um, because basically anybody can, in theory, surprise another armed force. You know, you can creep up there on your feet. But then once you've surprised them, you're going to have to make your getaway. 
and you can only run so fast, and the other guy can run too. But the horse allows you to make a, a steady escape. And from there, this just kicks off a, a horse-based arms race. All right, They start attaching clumsy uh, wheeled vehicles uh, to the horses, and these, uh, these evolved into chariots, which, uh, which were, in a way, another game-changing technology because these were the, basically the super weapons of the time. Um, then you had other advancements such as stirrups and saddles. Uh, the stirrup was really important because you could actually sit down in the saddle, put your feet back uh, in, into the stirrups, and uh, and put a lance under your arm and drive it directly into the enemy. So you'd have the force of the horse behind the weapon. Um, uh, yeah, so the horse was a, a major uh, contributor to our ability to uh, destroy one another. Unwittingly. You can't blame it on the horses. Definitely not. Mr. Ed is not to blame. Yeah. Uh, from there, uh, it kind of goes along similar lines. Uh, eventually, we're able to develop uh, uh, steam technology, and uh, eventual, uh, eventually the combustion engine. Sure. All right, and this uh, basically just picks up where the horse uh, left off, and it alters the speed of, and range of war. All right, we can travel um, farther, and we can travel faster, and uh, and it also changes. Uh, you know, it, it also changes what kind of supplies you're going to need. It's no mo- no longer do you have to worry about feeding the horses as well. Uh, you just have to keep the, the, the tanks gassed up. Well, don't they even use internal combustion engines on ballistic missiles? I think they do. So it's powering. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, combustion engines, uh, you know, led to pretty much any kind of motorized weapon you can think of, from airplanes in the sky, you know, to uh, uh, to submarines under the sea. Um, it's it just totally changed. And speaking of which, uh, that's the other uh, major transportation-based, game-changing weapon technology, uh, air power. Sure. And uh, you know, this is this is pretty obvious. It just opens an entirely uh, different um, theater of warfare. All right? You, suddenly you're able to, to, uh, to fly over the battlefield, uh, provide air support for your troops. Therefore, you need, you don't, therefore, you don't need as many troops on the ground. Right. No land is impenetrable now. Now, I mean, we don't have to have Omaha beaches and stuff like that with troops washing up and these great waves on the shore. I mean, we have air power. So, I mean, anything is, is, is game, right? Yeah. They all, they offered an, an alternative to, uh, to typical, uh, land and sea invasion. You know, it's just another way into, uh, enemy territory. And, uh, at the time, uh, people thought that, uh, bombarding, uh, civilian populations would be the kind of thing that would just instantly bring about peace, that the nations would just crumble, uh, far faster with that kind of threat over their heads. The horse, the combustion engine, and, uh, pow- and powered flight, all three of these are, have, have changed how far we can, we can travel, how we travel, and, uh, the speed with which we can get there. Um, so these are all basically, uh, weapon delivery systems and they've changed the way we wage war. Right. So if you have all these delivery systems, you have to have a means of controlling them and communicating with them and, you know, changing the game plan if, if the troops are on the move. And so communication is a major theme within military technology. So before recent times, commanders could still reach their troops, but they just had to rely on stuff like you know, a guy running or mm. a guy on a horse or flags or maybe, you yeah, know. Yeah, use of banners and some guy standing on a hill watching everything. Or the pigeon, you know, the, the messenger pigeon. But this was a problematic system, as Napoleon could attest to back in the day. Um, there's a story of Napoleon forgetting about a few thousand troops during the Battle of Jena. So Napoleon surely would have appreciated the advances in communication that have come about, like the advent of radio. And it's subsequent introduction into the theater of war. 
So first we had the wireless telegraph and this led to lots of cracking codes and stuff like that, which I kind of love. Oh yeah. The, um, Enigma code and so, so forth. Yeah. Right. So you're communicating your message over a wireless telegraph. And granted, it's getting the message there faster, but mm-hmm. it's open to enemies and, and spies and stuff like that. By World War II, though, you have shortwave radios. And this was a huge thing for the Germans, actually, because the Germans, as you guys might remember, did these um, coordinated blitzkrieg movements in which... Pilots and soldiers are all talking by radio, and so you have one airplane who's providing cover, and tanks are moving in, and it's this kind of... Lightning war. Uh, That's the literal translation. Yeah, Yeah, right. In addition to shortwave radio, you have radar, and this is the first automated way to really see the enemy and be seen yourself. So goodbye to that guy on the bluff who's looking out for approaching troops or ships. Radar let us bounce radio waves or microwaves off solid objects, and then alert us if say, an enemy plane is flying into our particular neck of the woods. Then, this is actually another favorite, because I love all spy stuff, you have the spy satellite. And this is as far back as the Cold War, essentially. Countries have been sending up recon satellites to see what the other side is up to. Modern spy satellites can do more than just take photos. They can collect telephone, radio, and internet signals. The problem seems to be is that sometimes these images or information that it captures seem to be a little blurry. Have you yeah. ever looked at some of these photos? Uh, yeah, I'm, well, I'm, I'm thinking of the rest of development episode with the WMDs, but that's that's different because those turn out not to be WMDs. But yeah, they, there's uh, you can only get so clear an image, and then you sort of have to decide exactly what you're looking at. Yeah, yeah. And then beyond spy satellites, we have, of course, GPS. And this basically turns the world into a giant, instantly accessible map, and that's pretty handy if you're a soldier with no earthly idea where you are, suddenly landed in foreign territory. Mm-hmm. So that kind of covers the major advancements in communications, but we saved the best for last, which, of course, is firepower. Yeah, well, the, the best, but also kind of the worst. Yeah. yeah, I guess the most impressive one, the most explosive one. Yeah, and yeah, it definitely has the most bang. Yeah, so let's move on to the big guns. Okay. First, we have gunpowder, and we have the Chinese, basically, to thank for this. They came up with it uh, while they were trying to mix immortality elixirs. Really? They <laughs> created the exact opposite of that. <laughs> So the Chinese made early uh, versions of gunpowder weapons, um, including like bombs and guns and even a type of cannon called, get this, the Flying Cloud Thunderclap Eruptor. Wow. Is that, I, I can just imagine the instructions for that somehow being very hard to follow. <laughs> so gunpowder, of course, changed China. And once it made its way across trade routes, it also changed uh, Europe and Asia. And it gave those people, the ability to dominate over the barbarians. And it was also eventually said to have crumpled the Byzantine Empire. Wow. So gunpowder is a pretty game-changing technology. But in addition to gunpowder, you have to have the ability to focus it, right? You know, you have to be able to hit your enemy if that's what you're aiming to do. And so this is where grooved gun barrels actually came into effect. So you want to take the big ones? Yeah. Um, you know, what are you firing and what are you blowing up? Uh, you know, we've been talking about gunpowder, which is, is pretty effective. But uh, we also developed some pretty terrifying armaments on top of this. Um, first of all, there's uh, biological and chemical weapons to consider. And by chemical, I mean, technically, uh, gunpowder is a chemical weapon. But we're referring to everything that's not uh, gunpowder or an explosive um, Stuff like mustard gas. And- yeah, mustard gas, um, for, as far as chemical uh, goes. And then for biological things like uh, anthrax or uh, botulism toxin. And um, <clears throat> these are pretty terrifying in that, you, 
uh, with, with all these, it's just in, it allows you to kill more people. Uh, and not just people. I mean, uh, chemical and biological weapons can be used uh, against armies, but they can be live, you know, in civilian populations, but they can be used against plant life, crops, uh, animal life. Um, and uh, they've, they've pr- proven pretty tricky, too, in that you can't, you can't make a chemical weapon or biological weapon that only kills your enemies. It, you know, it's going to be dangerous to, to your troops as well. Um, and they're very difficult to control. Uh, the effects are, are, are um, unpredictable. And uh, I really, you don't have to look uh, uh, any further back in time than uh, World War One to to see just how like psychologically terrifying they they were. Um, you know, they they were used to, uh, to to great effect and to great terror uh, during the First World War. And uh, and as a result, you didn't see as uh, as much use in the Second World War because all, all the major leaders um, in the Second World War had been troops in the First World War and they'd seen the effects firsthand. Um, this will probably get cut, but there's a there's a great poem by uh, Wilfred Owen, uh, Dulce et Decorum Est, World War II poem. You've probably okay. heard this, right? Gas, gas, quick boys in ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time, but someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. You know, so it, that's... That has always kind of gives me, given me the chills. I've not heard that before. Yeah. So, I mean, it, uh, terrifying weaponry. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and very effective. An ounce of botulism toxin uh, can kill an estimated uh, 60 million people. So that's something to think about. As a result, they've been, uh, I think, 22 uh, uh, participating countries um, agreed to ban biological weapons in uh, 1972, and uh, there are a lot of similar bans on the table for uh, uh, and in place for chemical weapons as well. And then the big one, of course, is uh, nuclear armaments, the ability to split the atom and um, create a nuclear explosion. This particular weapon has uh, fortunately only uh, been used twice in warfare, um, once at Hiroshima, where it killed 90,000 people, and uh, once at uh, Nagasaki, where it killed 35,000 people. And uh, I, I, I think the, uh, the true terror of this, uh, this weapon is evident in how little it's been used. Uh, you don't have to look any, any, uh, any further than the Cold War to see just how it can really just chill out <laughs> Um, military aggression, at least uh, overt military aggression. Um, and we're continuing to live in an age uh, where uh, military um, a conquest uh, defense is defined by the, the fear and the threat of, of nuclear weapons. Yeah, and then you have smaller robots, like stuff that can search for booby traps, like the PackBot, or you have bigger remote-controlled trucks or tanks, you know, with computers inside them, and mm-hmm. then, you know, doing stuff like clearing mines, and then the drones, like you said, doing right. recon in the air. And then eventually the robots take over and uh, turn all the weapons on us, right? Right. And also we have clone armies. No, we don't have clone armies. <laughs> that could be the way of the that, that article didn't happen, as I recall. Well, it wasn't for lack of trying. It was pitched, right? Will clone armies change the world or what will clone will clone armies take over? And Okay, Robert. Yeah. So if you think we missed a military technology, send us an email at sciencestuff at howstuffworks.com. Or brush up on bots of the military kind of the top 10 game-changing military strategies over on the site. And you can check out the blogs where we talk about everything from uh, what the latest podcasts are about to uh, megastructures. Again, you can always send us an email, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.